0: We often think about the big decisions, who to marry, where to live, what career. Because we think about them and we take a while to think about them, these aren't spur of the moment decisions. They're lingering in our head. We're filtering information. We're thinking about permutations and combinations and what ifs. And so we generally get those decisions directionally correct because we know we're thinking. But there's these ordinary moments that tend to derail us. And you can pick the best partner. You can pick you know, the best spouse. But if you don't go home and invest in that relationship, It's not going to work. You can pick the best career, but if you don't show up and work your butt off, you're going to get fired.
1: Welcome to Secret Leaders. Today, I'm joined by Shane Parrish. Shane spent the early part of his career entirely classified as a cybersecurity expert and that's about all we're allowed to know. Uh, Now, as a thought leader, author, podcast host, and entrepreneur, he's aiming to help others to upgrade themselves through rigorous self-improvement strategies, looking to move away from your run-of-the-mill self-help content. He's with us today to talk about his new book, Clear Thinking, which I've just finished, which is full of simple hands-on insights you can use to optimize your decision making. Shane's helped thousands of executives, leaders, and managers around the world learn the repeatable behaviors that improve results. So I know he's gonna have plenty to offer us all today. Shane, welcome to Secret Leaders.
0: Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm excited to be here.
1: Before we dive into the book, I want to just know uh how Farnham Street actually started. Um give us the uh give us the the quick life story to date.
0: Yeah, so in uh, August 28, 2001, I started working for an intelligence agency. And as we all know, two weeks later, the world forever changed. And everybody who was working there at the time sort of got thrust into these positions of responsibility and authority and power that they weren't you know, quite prepared for. Uh, and we had to do our best to figure it out. And so I ended up at a young age making decisions that impacted not only my team, but my country, uh, other countries, troops in theater. And they had these really, you know, wide, wide-ranging wide ramifications. And nobody had ever taught me sort of how to make decisions. And so Farnham Street started as this side project when I went around And I was like, how do I get better at this? How do I learn how to make decisions? And how do I teach myself how to do this? Because I have a responsibility to my country and I have a responsibility to all the military people who are putting their lives on the line for us. And I want to do the best that I can. So the best that I can doesn't look like holding a machine gun standing on the front line. The best that I can is can I improve my decision making? And if I can, how do I go about doing that? And that was the impetus for Farnham Street. Keep in mind, at the time, I wasn't allowed a public profile. I wasn't allowed anything. There was not, if you Googled Shane Parrish, you got some soap opera star from Australia in the 1990s. He didn't exist. The website was 1440 or 68131 1440.blogger.com, which don't go to today because somebody's stolen this from me. But like that was the original website. And it was never meant to be read by other people. It was just me writing about my reflections. Because if you think about how we learn, we actually learn through reflection. We don't learn through experience alone. So think of learning as a loop. At 12 hand, you have an experience. At the three hand, you have a reflection. At the six hand, you have a compression or abstraction. And at the nine hand, you have an action. And the action leads to experience. So you have this loop of learning. Most of us leave out the reflection part. So the learning doesn't really cement. And the reflection is I'm going to take all this data, these, you know, if you think about it like a movie, here is a uh un, you know before the movie's edited you have maybe 300 terabytes of footage but what goes into the final movie is more like 4 gigabytes And so you take these 300 terabytes of raw unrecorded footage or raw recorded footage and you compress that into a movie. And that's what we're doing with experiences. We're taking all this data and all this input and we're reflecting on it to figure out what matters, what doesn't, why does it matter, what will I do differently next time. And that becomes our compression that we take with us that becomes an action. And so Farnham Street was basically just me writing about my reflections.
1: A lot of the lessons that I got. It's funny because the the sort of framing of the book is sort of, um, you know, reframing self-help. But there were a bunch of principles in there I found very similar to self-help. And by the way, I do like self-help and upgrading and all of the things in between is is my jam. But one of the things, for example, is, you know, journaling. It's a very common self-help tool. And it's also a really helpful way to get clarity.
0: So, so yeah. So... A lot of people do journaling to sort of figure things out in their mind and organize things. And I call that making the invisible visible. So you start writing about things and then you get your thoughts on the paper. And, but what you're really doing that I thought was valuable that I haven't seen people connect before is that you're learning. The act of writing is reflecting and you're reflecting on the experiences that you've had and you're drawing compressions and sort of abstractions while you're writing. So writing is also about the means by which we recognize we don't know what we're talking about. We don't fully understand something. And it's also the means by which we have new ideas, which is really interesting when you think about a world of AI, when AI can write for you, what implications will that have?
1: You know, um, when I started my, my current company is called Heights and it started as a newsletter. And I was going from a tech company into a new space, which was mostly around mental health and gut health. Two areas that I was having personal experience with, but not a medical doctor, not a scientist, nothing. I understood this idea that because I don't know anything about it now, and because I'm not going to get to that sort of PhD level, doesn't mean I can't learn the things that I need to know about it. And so I thought, what is the most practical way that I can hold myself accountable to get this knowledge? And I decided to write a newsletter. Um, We have 160,000 newsletter subscribers four years in to it, and a company that's making products that's doing 10 million plus in revenue, but in the first 18 months was just a newsletter. And I used it as my personal accountability. My process was, I'm going to read PubMed and what science says about brain health, mental health, and gut health, and I'm going to translate that into my own words in millennial speak, basically, but into my own words. So in a way that I think people will understand because it will help me make sense of it. And in that process, I came across this term that you've probably heard too, which is uh, when you read something, you learn it once. And when you share it, you learn it twice, Um, which is kind of a neuroscientific principle. And I found that to be the best way to learn. And that's neuroplasticity in action. It's committing to a process of documenting the thoughts. And hey, before you know it, I still don't know as much as any doctor, but I know a ton more than a lot of people because of the process I put myself into.
0: Totally, 100%. So let's think about that through the learning loop, like I just talked about. You're having an experience, and your experience doesn't need to be physical experience. It can be this conversation is an experience. Reading a book is an experience. Reading PubMed is an experience. You're reflecting on that experience, and you're putting compressions into your newsletter. So the people consuming your newsletter, are reading your compressions. And why that's important is only the expert is doing the reflection. And you have to know when you're the expert and when you're not. You have to know your circle of competence or where you're playing a game where you have an edge and where other people have an edge. And so if you're learning the compressions, it's fun. It's like learning a recipe. And so if I go home and I take a recipe that's made by a chef and I cook it and everything works well, I get a great result. I don't know why it's a great result, but I get a great result. But if if something goes wrong, the chef instantly knows what happened, why it happened. Oh, you know, your heat was too high. There's too much salt in here because they've done the reflections. And so in a lot of areas of your life, you really want to consume other people's compressions. And in a lot of areas, you really want to create your own compressions. And picking and choosing those two things are super important because you can't compress everything. You can't just reflect on everything. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes you have to, but you can't confuse the two different types of knowledge, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I'm actually trying to be really smart, uh, thinking in my head, and I can't, so I'll ask you it. But that is essentially the tagline in Varnum in Street, isn't it? It's like, you know, smart people have done the thinking.
0: Yeah, mastering the best of what other people have already figured out. That's the tagline to my life. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there we go. God, I'd have looked great if I could have just remembered that off the cuff. But <laughs> I knew it was something in that in that direction. I'm going to share something just before we start, which is I, th- I thought it was interesting. This sort of goes back to the point I was making on on the self-help. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to see one of my favorite speakers, authors, uh, people, Eckhart Tolle he's like a spiritual teacher wrote the power of now um and i reread it and it was interesting because i reread it. i reread it every year and i reread it just before i reread clear thinking and i found it really i don't know if you've read it by the way but i found it very interesting how probably the world's most popular spiritual book um which is about presence and being in the now and how to separate your thoughts from the noise and the chatter i actually you should read it because i found it extremely interesting how completely different the context of what he's saying is and the insight was actually very very similar to what you're saying which is you know how to get to the best quality thoughts which then lead to the best quality decisions Um, and what I love about it is know your audience you know he's speaking to a certain audience a certain way solving a certain problem which is more the mental health side of chatter in your head and you know pain and anxiety and depression and all of that stuff and you're coming at it from a point of view of you know well how do we actually clear our heads and make great decisions um the stuff is not really up for debate there is a process the trick is in the mastery and i think that's what was really great about your book was the examples of the mastery of how to get there oh that's Um, interesting
0: i'm gonna go pick up this book on the way back to the hotel tonight I'll send it to you. It's one yeah. of my favourite... Oh, yeah, if
1: it's tonight, it's one of my favourite books to send to people because I think it's... Um, yeah, but, but that was really surprising to me and maybe it was coincidental, juxtap- juxtaposed, you know, back to back, I read that and then yours. Um, but I think this is a good intro and framing for um, the lessons in the book, which is clear thinkers... I mean, if I could summarise the message in your book, it's that clear thinkers make better decisions. So... So, so the question is, how do we do it?
0: Well, there's three components to clear thinking if you think about it. And so the first is positioning and your position determines whether you're playing on easy mode or hard mode. Uh, the second component is managing the urges or defaults that otherwise get us into trouble. And the third component is thinking independently. Uh, And you can't really think independently unless you've done the first two things. And so I I think it's really important to think about decision making and break it up into positioning, which is everything that happens before the moment of decision. And then at the moment of decision, which is managing your defaults and making the best choices possible. But often we end up, and the reason the tagline for the book is turning ordinary moments into extraordinary results, is we we often think about the big decisions, who to marry, where to live, what career. And because we think about them and we take a while to think about them, these aren't spur of the moment decisions. They're lingering in our head. We're filtering information. We're thinking about permutations and combinations and what ifs. And so we generally get those decisions directionally correct because we know we're thinking. But there's these ordinary moments that tend to derail us. And you can pick the best partner. You can pick uh, you know, the best spouse, whatever you want to call your, your significant other. But if you don't go home and invest in that relationship, it's not going to work. You can pick the best career. But if you don't show up and work your butt off, you're going to get fired. You can pick the best city to live in. But if you don't engage in the culture and the environment, then it just goes to zero. So all these ordinary moments that we don't think of as decisions have have the power to multiply these things that we've been taught to focus on by zero. And what happens when you multiply any number by zero? It just
1: goes to zero. I also, I came across a quote, wasn't by you, but I wonder how you reflect on this, which I can't tell whether it completely agrees with what you're saying or says the opposite. So let's try it, which is something along the lines of, um, you cannot overstate the absolute insignificance of almost everything that happens in your life. Oh, that's interesting. I'd
0: have to reflect on that. I think the ordinary moments determine your position and your position determines whether you're playing on easy or hard mode. And you really want to make your position such that you're playing on easy mode as often as possible.
1: Yeah. So I suppose, you know, at the higher level, it's like there are big moments that will happen in your life. Um, And your reflection on a quote like that would be true. But the little moments are the ones that position you for those big moments.
0: Yeah, so you're going to get angry. You're going to make these big decisions. You're going to choose a partner. You're going to choose a career. That's not going to change. But everything that goes into before that really dictates things. And maybe an example will help solidify this for people about what I mean, what goes into before and what does positioning look like. One of my kids came home with a really bad mark. And for anybody who has teenagers, you know, they just sort of shrug their shoulders, toss it at you with that teenage attitude, and is like, I did my best. And I was like, oh, gosh, uh, what do I say? And I remember playing sports as a kid, and, you know, all the kids quit in the car ride on the way home. They never quit at practice. They never quit when it was hard. They never quit when they they failed on the field. They always quit through that conversation. So I'm super cognizant of like how I handle this situation. So I let the emotions sort of like dissipate. Then I go back to him and I'm like, what do you mean you did your best? Explain this to me. What does it mean to do your best? And I was like, walk me through in detail. And he's like, well, okay. My test started at 10. I sat down. I scanned all the questions. I figured out which ones were worth the most points and then I allocated my time accordingly. I was like, great. So you think about this like most adults think about this. You think about the moment of decision. Now, I wanna rewind 72 hours. We're just gonna rewind three sort of days for you. Now tell me, what did you do over those three days? And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, did you study? He's like, not really. I was like, did you eat healthy? He's like, not really. Did you sleep? Oh, I went to bed late every night cuz I was playing video games. Were you cranky? Yes. Did you pick a fight with your brother? Yes. So, the position you chose to be in, you chose. All of these things are 100% within your control. The position you chose to be in when you wrote the test was hard mode. You didn't choose to be in easy mode cuz if you wanted to be in easy mode, you would have studied, you would have went to bed on time, you would have eaten healthy, you wouldn't have picked a fight with your brother. You do all these things that are within your control. And that doesn't change the fact that you have to take a test at 10 a.m., but it will dramatically change the results of that test, or it'll change the ease at which those results come.
1: I actually think it's a really great example. Um, So relatable to anyone, not just with kids, but everyone's been a kid and been in that situation, too. Um, But you can apply this to being an adult too. Think about working for an
0: organization, right? And you're thinking about, oh, I want a promotion in the future. And most of us just passively wait and then the opportunity for promotion comes up and then we apply. It's like, how do I position myself so that that promotion is a done deal? It's already done. Start thinking a year in advance, start thinking six months in advance. What experiences do I need? Who do I need to talk to? What connections do I need to make? There's always something you can do to improve your position for tomorrow.
1: It reminds me a little bit. I mean, your line of question was much better than this, but I can't remember a guest was reflecting on this recently. I think it's a famous Henry Kissinger scenario where someone came up and asked him, um, you know, or gave him the work and was like, you know, he's like, is this the best? Is this the best you can do? And they're like, of course, it's the best. And he's like, yeah, OK, if you think it's the best. He's like, well, hold on a second. It's very one minute manager, if you've ever read that as well, right? It's just like so simple. You just reflect back the question. And if you've got the right type of person, they're like, fuck, I know that wasn't my best.
0: Well, so this tells you everything, right? So that anecdote appears in the book, Clear Thinking. And this came about because I was working with somebody who was smart, but had very low standards. Smart, but lazy, if you will. And, you know, I want smart people with high standards because high standards are going to carry you through and they're going to create different results If you're smart but lazy, you're probably just going to get average results. And that might be what you want. As long as you're consciously choosing that, there's no judgment on my part. But I was working with somebody like that, and I was like, I don't want to, he sent out this, and everybody's probably worked in this scenario. Everybody can relate to this. He created this really uh, crappy first draft of a presentation, sent it out to the entire team, and he's like what do you think? And you know, there's not a lot of thought put into it. There's enough thought that you can sort of like finagle that there's thought put into it, but the standard's really low. And what do we do as people on the other end of this? We're like, oh, here's a mistake. Here's a mistake. Here's a mistake. So we tend to correct people without thinking. We just can't help ourselves, but to like do the work. And so I noticed everybody sort of like doing the work for him. And then I just replied and I was like, is this your best work? And I didn't say anything about having read it or not, and he said no. And then so he sent me another draft, and I did the exact same thing. I'm like, is this your best work? Two days later, he comes back. Well, the final presentation that he did all by himself at that point, he had taken a little bit of input from other people, was remarkably better than before. And all I said from that point on is, this is the quality of work that I expect from you every time. And then that sets the bar. It sets the standard. And I find when we have low standards about things, it's because we don't really care about them. If you think in your life about what you're passionate about, what you really care about, you have high standards, you have high expectations, and that's okay. You have high expectations for your partner, you have high expectations for the people you do business with, you have high expectations for all the things that you're passionate about and all the things that you care about, and that's okay.
1: Taking this idea of high standards, um, there was a part of your book that I really resonated with maybe more than anything else. And the reason was because maybe the timing of the idea and the power actually of how to apply this with GPT-4, which is the idea of exemplars. Mm -hmm. So you talk in the book about exemplars, um, which is an ancient concept really. It's essentially, you know, people that you look up to who have a certain standard and way of doing something and set a good example. I think that's a fair enough explanation of it. Um, and so they provide the best teaching on a certain subject. And so if you want to, you know, learn history, you'll pick one person. If you want to learn, you know, French, you'll learn another person, and uh, you'll learn from another person. And that can be applied across every single micro level possible. Um I love the idea of this sort of like personal board of advisors that was based on exemplars who Thanks to GPT-4 as well, living or dead, you could actually probably create your own group of advisors and ask them how they would behave in any given situation and sense check that you yourself are setting the high standards of people that you admire. So that was what I took from that. I don't think you specifically called out GPT-4 in it, but my mind started racing on like, oh, holy shit, this is an amazing idea. That's actually how I'm going to practically apply it personally. Um, I'm going to be asking Marcus Aurelius every single day and he'll be like, Just chill the fuck out is the answer. <laughs> um, it's not so bad. Um, but yeah, I'd love, I'd love you to explain um, your, uh, your chapter on exemplars and what that's all about.
0: Well so let's put it in context and rewind and connect it to standards. So the standards that most of us grow up with are 100% luck. They're the standards of our parents. We're taught to follow certain rules that are unwritten about life and certain expectations and if those are the standards we grow up with then at what point do we acquire higher standards? Well there's two ways to do that. One, you can work with somebody who holds you to a higher standard. You work with a master, a master at anything, whether it's an extreme athlete or a master uh, sort of entrepreneur or CEO or professional manager, however you want to look at that. Somebody who's clearly at the top of their game, they're not going to accept low, low quality work from you and they're not going to accept low quality work for the, from themselves. And that can be a bit jarring if you're going in having only low standards. And so you create this contrast, but at some point you take control of your own life. Like what you were born into uh, carries you only so far, but you take over your own trajectory about where you're going next. No matter if you're starting high or low, it doesn't matter. You're in control of improving that. And what do we do if we don't get to work with, we, we don't luck out, so we don't get the best parents and we don't luck out and we don't get to work for a master. Well, you can adopt the very best people in history and recruit them to work for you. And they work for you on a personal board of directors. You can create a personal board of directors with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and Marcus Aurelius, dead, alive, it doesn't matter. What you're doing is you're doing two things. One, You know the standards at which those people work, think, and believe, and execute. Well, now all of a sudden, if you're running all of your judgments through them, not only are you going to see things through a different perspective, which we'll come back to in a second, but you're going to have a different standard for the quality of work that you do. And why is it important to get a different perspective onto the problem? Well, we're like that kid standing in a train. I think we all learned this in grade nine physics. It's like you're holding a ball, you're standing on a train, the train is moving at 60 kilometers an hour. How fast is the ball moving? Well, relative to you standing on the train, the ball's not moving at all. But to somebody watching the train, the ball's moving at 60 kilometers an hour. Why is this important with decision-making and thinking? Well, the source of all problems in decision-making and thinking is blind spots. We can't see the full picture. If we had perfect information, we would know what to do every time. It's like playing poker. If I knew everybody's hand, I would know how to play my hand perfectly every time. Doesn't mean I'm gonna win every time, but I'd never make a mistake. And I think that with life, we can get a shortcut to removing blind spots. We can never fully eliminate them because that is almost impossible. But the minute we start seeing the world through other people, through Warren Buffett's eyes or through Marcus Aurelius's eyes, Well, now all of a sudden, we're removing ourselves from our own head, we're looking into the problem from a different direction, and now we see the problem more clearly than we did before. We see the situation with more clarity, and we've removed blind spots. That leads us to better decisions, which lead to better outcomes.
1: Uh, So a friend of yours, Tim Urban, who was a guest on on the show recently, um, you know, I loved his new book, and... um, big enormous topic to be trying to cover in a book uh but what's our problem and you could summarize the entire thesis of the book i think i hope he doesn't you know refuse this point but it's not about what you think it's how you think um again very similar to the point in clear thinking right which is like you know the quality of your thoughts is determined by the quality of your questions. And so giving yourself the space to ask the right questions determines a much better outcome. Um, so yeah, I'd love you to talk on, you know, how we get to better questions and better outcomes.
0: We'll just rewind a little bit, right? And so think about the environment you're in. Your environment isn't just physical. Your environment is everything that is around you. So it's who you hang out with, it's the information you consume, the podcasts you listen to, the audiobooks you listen to, the books that you read, the people you follow on Twitter—these are all people putting thoughts into your head. And if those thoughts are different and diverse, maybe you have a different perspective than if they're all sort of homogeneous. And you know, if you're a flat earther, and you know that that whole group spans the globe, which is ironic in a way. And but if you're reading only that the Earth is flat you're not getting the outside perspective. So again, it comes down to blind spots. And so when you get more information, you tend to be a bit more curious about bridging gaps between these things or synthesis. And curiosity is really the basis by which we start getting better questions because you're trying to make sense of the world. Anytime something happens in the world that doesn't make sense to you, it's an opportunity to update your beliefs because if you were right about the world, then you wouldn't have got a surprising result. And it doesn't mean on a one-off basis, but if it's repeatedly surprising, it's really interesting. My friend Adam Grant keeps uh, what he calls a surprise journal. Every time he's surprised throughout the day, he sort of makes a note in this journal about what was surprising and why it was surprising. And then he goes through and he's like... Is there commonality over the sort of weeks and months? And two, do I have to update my beliefs because I'm getting surprising results, but I'm doing the same thing over and over again? Well, at some point, that's not a surprise. Uh, I need to just update how I'm doing things. The environment that you're thinking in is really important. We talked about that with the politics, right? So if you're operating in an environment of you have to decide right now, you're going to make a certain type of decisions. If you operate in an environment where you're getting really low quality inputs, low quality information into your head, well, everybody's going to make poor decisions with low quality inputs and information. So the question then becomes, how do we sort out, how do we get higher quality information into our head? And Interestingly, we can take that back to the learning loop. So who are we best able to learn from? We're best able to learn from people who've had direct experience, people who, not the people who are are, are sort of taking somebody else's experience, and that works for us individually. If we take somebody else's experience, we reflect on it and we draw our own compression, that's really good. But for a lot of things, we want to go as close to the source as possible. If you think of how information filters up through an organization, there's often five or six hands in there. And I think we all remember that game from kindergarten, you start with like one sentence, you're sitting in a circle, you whisper it in everybody's ear, and by the end of it, it's a completely different sentence. That happens in organizations. I used to do this all the time when I worked directly for our deputy minister. I would sort of pick up the phone and call the lowest level of the organization to be like, what's happening here? Because here's what I'm being told, and it doesn't quite make sense. And when I would talk to the person closest to the problem, the person with the highest fidelity information, I would often gather Key, critical, important insights that get filtered out by people who aren't as close to the problem. And they don't get filtered out intentionally. There's no maliciousness to this. It's just They don't think it's relevant, but it might be relevant to somebody else farther down the chain because they have a different perspective on the world than you do. So they filter out information they don't think is relevant, but what they're really missing is sort of the key strategic picture. They're missing how things interconnect. They're always missing information. And so it's really important that we get the highest quality inputs we can And if you're going to place effort into things, it's like curating your information flow, curating who gets into your head, curating the the books that you read, the podcasts you listen to. There's a lot of value into doing that.
1: I think it's really interesting as well. The world has taught us in various regions, of course, in different moments. I believe the world has taught us really valuable lessons to take on. Um, Speaking as a, a Londoner, the most impactful lesson i learned in politics was brexit because if you grow up in london um it is not possible to conceive that uh we would want to leave europe didn't make sense to you as a londoner um because you have an exceptionally multicultural city where all of your friends are from somewhere else and that is literally what makes london awesome And no one in London really doesn't feel that way. And yet you go to England, like outside of London, God forbid, um, and you learn that actually people don't appreciate that as much. And, you know, there are people talking about, well, why aren't there more English people here? And you're like, ah, you must be a fringe voice. Anyway, I learned in Brexit the hard way that um, I was choosing to be in basically a liberal echo chamber and that wasn't healthy for me. And it was really a great lesson because ever since I have consistently sort out the opinions of people that I strongly disagree with and sometimes find quite repugnant, it really helps me though, and has actually created so much visibility on my own blind spots, which, um, you know, back to your point on, and this is going somewhere, back to your point on, you know, consuming information and being, I, you know, I think about myself as well, you know, as an editor of my own life, I'm trying to choose. Now, I can be... I could choose a life of comfort and choose all the stuff that I already believe in for sure. However, it actually adds a lot of value for me to open up my mind to other positions and other views. And you know, the most surprising stuff can happen as well from good critical thinkers. And I think that's what it comes down to. You become a better critical thinker because you're able to say, Actually, my very homogenized, broad opinion of that person was wrong. Turns out there's nuance in their opinions too. Who
0: knew? Well, so this is interesting, right? So a couple of things that you, you said really stuck out for me. One, you adopted the position of the city you lived in, basically, right? So you're living in an environment. That environment is influencing how you think. And other people living in a different environment are getting influenced in a very different way about how to think and act. And so what can we take away from that? Well, let's tie that to COVID. Without getting into the politics of COVID, let's go into lockdown. One of the interesting byproducts of the lockdown that I haven't seen almost anybody talk about is that the people governing us, the people making policy and legal decisions and and sort of financing decisions are not living in a representative way. And what do I mean by that? Well, they're not confronted with all of society. They're staying at home, and when they're at home, what happens when you're on Zoom only? And everybody's bringing groceries to your door, and you're not leaving your house. Well, you close your laptop at the end of the day. You go.
1: Well, here becomes super narrow. You go
0: hang out with your friends, who all think like you, all have the same socioeconomic status as you, all have the same political bias as you, and so the world starts to look like you. And then what happens? You start to make decisions based on the fact that the world looks this way. When we go into the office, for better or worse, and I know a lot of people don't like going into the office, but I'm going to offer maybe a counterintuitive insight to going to the office. You're confronted with all ranges of society. You have to work with that crazy person at the office who thinks differently than you do. You're forced to. You have to stand. You know, hear overhear different political conversations than you're used to. You have to interact with different socioeconomic statuses than just your own. Whether it's higher or lower, it doesn't matter. All of a sudden, the world starts to look like it has a lot more different type of people in it than you. And I would suggest that that environment is going to lead to better decision making as a small sort of variable into that process
1: i mean i'm interested in what you personally do around this right so you live in canada still
0: i do ottawa canada
1: right yeah so you live in ottawa canada you obviously travel sometimes your book etc but you're a dad you presumably have um the i'm gonna just guess you know typical dad life you know experience but you know. Online author and all, uh, yeah, and, and podcaster and I find actually a lot of what I'm probably describing, you know, relatively relatable. I can kind of imagine how your world and the people around you, although you know, having the occasional board of advisor level of person that you have might be slightly slightly different. We don't all have Charlie Munger and our personal board of advisors giving us uh, insights. But um, how do you personally then like use this framework? To sort of get outside yourself and expand your worldview.
0: Well, so a couple things that I do. One, on the podcast, The Knowledge Project, I just interview people. And when I'm interviewing them, there's no judgment on my part. I literally am trying to see the world through their eyes. I want to, what do you think? How do you feel about this? Why do you think it? What matters? I'm really trying to dive into their reflections about their experiences, because that's high fidelity information that's coming into my brain. But it also allows me completely different perspectives on the world than my own. I think that that's very valuable. And once a quarter, I basically go through everybody I follow online. And I'm like, why am I following this person? Do I still want to be following this person? Because those thoughts are going to become my future thoughts. And so I'm very careful about, do I have a representative view? Do I have people on both sides? And I'm not political, but if you just follow some... I don't know, far right, far left, then you're gonna become far right or far left. If you follow moderate, you're just gonna become moderate. And I wanna sort of see a a spectrum where I have people I respect on each end, far right, far left, and moderate. And as long as I respect the thought process those people have, and the quality of the the thought and thinking that they're putting behind it, well, that's gonna be high fidelity information for me because I never wanna get into a a foxhole about left, right. Like, I don't even think like that. It it doesn't matter. Uh, I think about how do we get the best outcome for the world? How do we get the best outcome for Canada? And my best outcome means long-term thinking. And if you're thinking long-term, it eliminates a lot of poor short-term behavior. And so when I think about all of those things, that's what I do. And then my friends are an amazing source of different people from different walks of life with very different experiences and different interpretations. And we're able to have conversations where we can hear each other's perspective. Now, that doesn't mean we agree with each other's perspective, but I do think we're genuinely trying to, oh, what's your input into this? And what do you see about this situation that I don't see? And that's one of my favorite questions for people. It's like, here's what I think. Okay, well, tell me what you see that I'm missing don't just argue with me like tell me where am i missing things where's my blind
1: spot and help me fill that in Uh, you know this comes back straight down doesn't it to it's not what you think it's how you think yeah and that process and i think that's why you know for myself when i identify myself maybe being more liberal and left-leaning and then you find people that you really respect and they're super intelligent and they can hold quite extreme right views It's actually very helpful to be like, well, maybe they're not wrong. They're very smart. They're capable of having quality thoughts. It'd be like listening to how they think is actually super valuable. I can learn a lot from the process.
0: We've become so intolerant of people who don't agree with us. And by intolerant, I mean, I don't want to follow them on social media. We think that if somebody's left or right uh, or the opposite of us, then they can't say anything useful. I see this every Sunday when I send out an email, I always include one quote that I feel is insightful and that quote can be from somebody who's colorful and histri- historically you know controversial and so what happens in those moments is people give me feedback and the feedback that they give me is like oh i can't believe you're talking about this person yeah. blah 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 this
1: person was canceled 2 years ago shane come on <laughs> and
0: it's like well hold on pause for a second like you can't throw out the orange because there's like a dent on the peel like that doesn't make sense and so you have to be able to learn from all different types of people uh, you know, and I think that everybody has something to teach us. And our job is to sort of walk around like Sherlock Holmes and figure out what that is.
1: So I guess coming out with uh, a book, I can only imagine uh, you've been asked to write this book for quite a long time. Um, and I I imagine as well as someone who writes a newsletter and writes a lot and speaks a lot, um, you've maybe had an idea for what you'd want to write about uh, for some time. But how long did the book take you to write and how can you give us an idea of like how meta the process of writing a book about clear thinking actually is, and if even you found tons of human stumbling blocks along the way with a, a messy mind and any bad processes that you noticed came up as well?
0: 100% totally messy process. I wrote the book three times over four years. Uh, keep in mind COVID was during those years, and, and that was a pretty busy time for me personally, as I'm sure it was for many people. Uh, the biggest thing that I learned about that was... Structure. Ryan Holiday gave me this advice before I started writing. So back in I think twenty eighteen, and he basically said structure the book before you start writing. And that little ego, the ego default in me was like, I've written for years. Like I don't, I don't need this advice. I don't need this help. And I discounted it. And the first time I wrote the book, it was complete trash because I hadn't sort of outlined how these things connect. And it's really interesting to think about the process of writing is the process of discovery, right? You're discovering what you don't know. And you're also discovering new ideas about what you think you know.
1: What was one of the most interesting things that you actually learned um, that you didn't know? And I suppose another way of framing it in your own language is like, what was a blind spot?
0: Well, the biggest thing that sort of came out, and I sort of had an intuitive idea about this, but the biggest thing that came out when I kept writing and rewriting and reconciling, like, why are some people consistently making better decisions than other people? And I would sort of gone through the, you know, they're not really that much smarter than everybody else. That doesn't account for it. You know, how do they end up, and everybody's like, they're lucky. And it's like, well, how do they end up being lucky? And the big blind spot I had for three years in writing this book was sort of positioning and how your position influences the quality of your decisions. Anybody looks like a genius when they're in a good position, and anybody looks like an idiot when they're in a bad position.
1: I think it's Seneca, right, who said luck is preparedness equal uh, uh, preparedness times opportunity. Totally. And that's that's essentially just another way of saying positioning, isn't it, really? Yes, yeah. Uh, one of my favourite stories in the book was from the naval officer. Can you tell us that story? Story time, Shane. Take us, take us for a little story. Michael Abershoff. and so he. Yeah, he... I wasn't going to remember his name, but I love the story. It's so simple, and it's so powerful because it's so simple.
0: So he took over the USS Benefold and it was the worst performing ship in the navy. And just for context, he turned it into the best performing ship in the navy, and there was no personnel changes. And you ask, well, that is such a remarkable turnaround. How did this happen? What made him such an effective leader? Can you guess
1: what he was going to say next? Yeah, Commander Mike was a G and a gent. Unfortunately, despite recording for another few minutes and everything looking fine, the audio cut out. I asked Shane what the most important lesson he learned researching his book was that we can take into our daily lives. And this is basically what he said. The crux of it was we should live our lives as if we were on our deathbed. Stop fretting the small stuff. Prioritise the things that really matter. In the end, those tend to be family and a very few close relationships. Ultimately, the clearest thinking is being able to rise above the daily noise and remember what matters. Speaking of memory, how much of this episode are you actually going to remember? Yeah, that's the problem with podcasts. If you want to internalize those gems that Shane has just dropped, then please sign up to our newsletter and we'll send you a summary. There's a link in the description. See you next time. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do.
0: Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks.
1: Told by leading names in sport and beyond.
0: You know what it takes to get to the very top.
1: There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow.
0: Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app.